Welcome to Ease, the entertainment and showbiz experiences podcast. It's all things entertainment based, how to get into it and how to develop it into something once you are ready to move on. All the information people didn't tell you, forgot to tell you, or were too busy to tell you, all told through personal experiences. This week, on part one of a two-part series, we sit down with Hannah Baumgarten, co-director and co-choreographer of the Dance Now Miami. We start this section off with all things concert dance. We also discuss New York culture, not getting things that you want, body images, and realizing you aren't alone in situations. Sometimes the thing you want the most is not the right fit. We also discuss Juilliard, getting in and not getting in. This is part one of a two-part series. Let's take a listen to this week's one-on-one. Welcome, Hannah. How are you? I'm well. It's great to be here, TJ. Oh, it's um, great having you. Yeah, we've known each other for such a long time. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Good. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, just tell everybody how we know each other, first and foremost. Well, what can I say? TJ, uh, I consider... Um, my firstborn child, <laughs> uh, TJ was a, a freshman at, or maybe a sophomore, but I think a freshman at Dillard um, Center for the Arts at Dillard High School mm-hmm. when I was brought in as an um, artist in residence by Momentum Dance Company to teach in their um, magnet dance program and uh, under the direction of Adelaide Muniz and Denise Dalton. Oh, no, I guess yep. at the time it was Denise, or was it Adelaide Muniz and yep, Lees and Jeanette Tronalone? Oh, option B, yeah. Yeah, so it was Adelaide Muniz and, and Jeanette Tronalone and... Um, Lees. Lees yep. Hummel. Mm-hmm. And he was a young, bright... And talented uh, dancer who notably was wearing a brace, a scoliosis <laughs> brace, for yeah. 20 odd hours a day. Yeah, and forever. despite that, was dancing up a storm. And, and he was in my the very first piece that I choreographed. And that was in 1997. And then later in 1999, I became a full time faculty member mm-hmm. in that program. And he was a senior, so a lot had changed. Um, but for him, it was just, for me, it was just a pleasure to see how his talent had just grown by leaps and bounds. And his, he was just an amazing, amazing dancer at that point. And with oh. his, you know, definitely with uh, uh, an eye on choreography. Mm-hmm. And, and really, you know, we at that time in Florida, and I, I say we because even though he was a student, he was definitely part of it, were really um, on the cutting edge of what is now contemporary dance. Yeah. That we mm-hmm. were part of this uh, first generation integrating ballet dance, jazz, and modern dance in a way that was, um, that really felt like we were, you know, zeitgeist. We were expressing the spirit of the time there was some, you know, teenage angst. There was some mm-hmm. kind of new music, you know, electronic yeah. music had has re- had really risen, and and there was a whole new sound to music, and it was it was really exciting, and it was exciting for me to be in that those moments, and and um, you know that's kind of how my professional career has been forged since then, but also to see people like TJ that were like you mm-hmm. that were not only dancing, but also choreographing. I think I mentioned to you that a, mm-hmm. a number of pieces I, that I really loved, but you did this one piece where you <laughs> were, you had a cast of women in yourself and you were saying you just wanted to be understood or something and you had a mask on and you pulled off the mask on your knees and then there was another mask underneath and another mask underneath and another mask underneath and um, that was great. You know, yeah. So some wonderful work, and 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 you were you and the the gang there were really uh, inspirational to me as a as a dance educator and a choreographer because you were just so all of you were so talented and so willing. Yeah. No. It was it was a fun time, and I talk about it with, with in um, I talk about high school a lot in an interview that I had with Anna, and we just we discussed that that experience a lot. So people should be or will be familiar with all that, but um, uh, with all that 
Hana has a, how many years has your company been going now? We are entering our 20th anniversary season. 20 years with Dance Now Miami. Dance Now Miami, unofficially since 1997, but officially as a uh, legal sovereign organization, we are entering our 20th anniversary season this September. Yeah, because I remember in 97, 98, one of those, maybe 99, when I could drive, uh, we, I was dancing with you in your company. Yes, you performed um, a lead with Colleen Farnham in, yeah. a piece in, in, in uh, North, which was part of a collaboration called North, South, East at the Colony Theater with a visual yeah. artist named Federico Uribe. And yeah. he had these beautiful sculptures. And that piece uh, was based on the Fibonacci principle, yeah. which other dancers and choreographers and, and artists have sort of... Um, doted on for centuries, which is the, the logarithmic spiral and, and sort of this search for uh, understanding as you circle in inward in your subconscious um, in this magical uh, spiral. And I remember it was about dreams and dreaming and I have a very active dream life. Yes. Yeah, so, so that was, yeah. that was a beautiful moment. Yeah. My one of my very first, like, professional company experiences so it was it was really it was a good time back back when the, <laughs> the company. it was a really good yeah, time actually yeah but um let's talk about you how did you start dancing getting into this entertainment industry uh well um in a way it really is because of the history of the entertainment business my my grandfather owned a movie theater oh cool in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And I Ooh. unfortunately I never met him because he passed away when my mother was young. But he and his brother owned a movie theater and and they were very, of course, excited by all of the entertainment and dance entertainment. And they he put my mother in dance classes mm -hmm. and wanted her to be the next Shirley Temple. And so I have footage from a 16 millimeter movie camera. <gasps> Mm -hmm. of my mother's birthday parties every year and there would be a parade in the house and then there would be the everyone sitting around the table with the birthday cake with all the candles and my my uncle and my mom and um all my my grandmother and 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 blowing out the candles and then they would cut to the scene where my mother was dancing and she would be standing on they had sort of an elevated fireplace so there was like about a little let's call it a wooden stage and she yeah. would do her, her tap dance and she would do her flip over onto her back and do the crawl <laughs> around like the crab and she would do cartwheels and kicks and turns and she was really quite good yeah um but at a certain age she decided that she wasn't really going to pursue it professionally and um you know i think that was the sort of the sensible thing to do with that in that day and age um, although she did end up uh, studying dance uh, when she was at Barnard University uh, and she was in class with Twyla Tharp. So you oh. know, these were Barnard has always had a really great dance program and she was part of that program. Mm -hmm. So when I was born, um, I guess for some reason, not my sister who's older, but for me, uh, I had kind of flat feet and my mother and father decided they were going to put me in dance. Maybe I was already kind of a ham or something. I'm not sure exactly. And that was when I was five years old. So they just plopped me in ballet classes. And I remember distinctly studying in Santa Cruz, where I grew up, with Susan Storty. Mm -hmm. And her, her teaching me my first lessons about what a dancer does and does not do. So I remember she was in class and her shoe was falling off while she was demonstrating. And, I mean, we were little. I was five. Mm -hmm. And she finished demonstrating the conversation and we, we said, but your shoe fell off during your demonstration. And she said, when you're a dancer, you have to be able to ignore these things. Even if a fly lands on your nose, you don't brush it off. So I think from a very, very young age, I was, um, I was completely indoctrinated in the level of discipline. I mean, I say it kind of mildly now, but it was very shocking when you were a kid to hear that, that this, dance and the execution of dance was something that could not be interrupted by anything yeah for any reason 
in performance. That's just how it was. Wow. And, uh, and, and uh, the following year, my family moved to Israel for, for a mm. few years uh, because my father uh, was working for the University of California and he was leading basically the junior year abroad program. Oh, okay, and, gotcha. and my parents, and he was teaching at the university. So we moved there and it was pretty traumatic being like dropped off at first grade in a school that no, where no one spoke English. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. but they did take me to dance classes and I had, I had a ballet teacher and, uh, what I realized later, a modern teacher, because it was Mar Lipschitz, Mr. Lipschitz and Chasia Levy. And I remember him, but I really remember her. And I remember sitting in second position on the floor and she had rows of bracelets up her arms and I remember her curving forward and bouncing and bouncing and bouncing. And it wasn't until probably about, I don't know, five years ago yeah. that I realized that I started in gram technique. Yep. And I looked her up and she was one of the founding members of Batsheva Dance Company that was founded by the Rothschilds and Martha Graham. Yeah. And wow. so, you know, what later when I was at Juilliard and I danced the lead in Graham work and I studied Graham and it, it really felt so wholesome on my body. I didn't understand that part of the reason was that I, it was one of the first dance forms that I had ever been introduced to. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, wow. it, was, it was interesting to think about that. You know, I, I just I just didn't put it together what we were doing until very yeah. recently. So. Wow. So yeah, so then by the time I came back to the United States around eight or nine, I was really fully invested in, in ballet. And mm -hmm. um, that's why I'm saying at that point, the modern part just sort of drifted into the, into the sure. clouds, into the ether. And, um, and my parents put me back in the same studio to have different owners and we were studying, you know, I, I studied a lot of different styles at the time. We were studying the Royal Academy of Dance style and we did exams. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and, uh, but I was always very involved in other things. I was always very involved in theater and musicals. Oh, yeah. And I was in, I, in my community, I had, there was a very unique, uh, female team. They were not, uh, romantic partners. They were both married, but it was, um, uh, Sylvia Deck and Minnie O'Leary. And they were, script and songwriters and they had a radio show on Saturday mornings with children singing their songs and they wrote a number of musicals so we performed all original musicals as children cool. up until about age 14 and um, the radio show is called Saturday's Child and some wonderful music um, one of my favorites was Mumble Grumble <laughs> said, mumble, grumble, rum de rum rum. You don't have to like it, but it's got to be done. It was about all your chores that you had to do. Yeah. And uh, they had a, a, you know, in the early California trying to introduce uh, soccer, they had a, they created a musical called Soccer Song. So being a performer was uh, not just limited to the ballet studio. I was involved in this, I guess you would call children's theater. Yeah. And, um, and it was, it was extremely fulfilling. Uh, I did, you know, uh, straight plays and and that, and I think that that all fed the theatrical perspective that I have now as an adult and a choreographer. Mm -hmm. Wow! Why don't you ever sing now? Do you, did you sing when you were younger? Mm -hmm. Because I stopped oh. singing and uh, and my voice is really untrained. I can yeah. sing comedic voices really sure. well, but my straight voice is yeah. poor. And and are you ready to hear one of the other reasons I don't sing anymore? Because mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was at Dillard and we were uh, involved in the musicals and I choreographed Annie my first year with Bruce Brown as the director, I yelled so much at the children because I was not a um, practice teacher and I didn't know how to make yeah. them quiet that I um, destroyed a vocal cord. And I have Whoa. a missing, I have like, if I can, I can go up and then there's one that just doesn't make any sound. <laughs> How's that? Too much. That's yes. Amazing. How's that yeah. for the life of the teacher? <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you mentioned Juilliard. So after you came back to uh, California, then you are on your road through ballet. And then what transitions did you make to get into Juilliard? What was your process? Um, well, 
when I, I, I wanted to move to New York and, and dance and my parents were not, um, they were not happy with that decision. Okay. So what we decided and they didn't, they wouldn't support me in that decision. And my parents are very open people. So I had to kind yeah. of respect their decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we agreed is that I would try to graduate high school year early and I would go oh, to college. Oh. And if I didn't like college, then I would go to New York. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm I guess- did. So- I'm guessing you, did you not like college just to go to New York? No. Okay. No. What happened was this. I auditioned for several programs and I was accepted, but I decided to several, but I decided to go to University of Utah because one oh. of my, one of my girlfriends, she went a year earlier. She was happy and successful there. She, she was from my studio. So two of us in the next year went and we were roommates. We grew up dancing together. We're still very close friends. Did you and happen to have um, Joy Ludlow? Joy was the director of Utah Ballet. She was gotcha. actually her. She and her husband were the director of Utah Ballet, which I danced with my second year, which is the was the the student company at the university. Do you know gotcha. Joy? I know Joy. Joy was my ballet teacher at um, Virginia School of Arts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was, uh, I think I went to VSA when I was 16. So probably right when I met you, Joy was there, was that summer. Joy was my teacher. Who knew? After all these years, we never figured that yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was at University of Utah. And uh, after the first year, I was promoted into Utah Ballet, which is the, let's call it the farm team <laughs> of Ballet West. So what they did ah. is we, we interacted a little bit. We had some guest artists from Ballet West and usually one or two of the very best dancers would move up into Ballet West. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also became the company manager because oh. my mother uh, growing up had been a, an arts administrator. Um, when I was growing up, she had been an arts administrator and run dance companies. So I kind of had a sense of how all these things worked. And I took the position and was it was great to be you know interacting with the faculty and you know running the tours and you know taking care of a lot of um, business, but I was um, emotionally not happy. I was mm-hmm. very heavy, and I'm a very large woman uh, in the world of ballet. And there were plenty of tall women in this company because Conrad and Joy, that's her mm-hmm. husband, Conrad mm-hmm. Ludlow. Um, they love tall women. So the height wasn't the issue, but I just wasn't in good enough shape to be where I should have been as a dancer. And it's, it's a big challenge, you know, mm-hmm. to stay in that kind of shape. And so I was, I was being pulled off stage, you know, gotcha. mm-hmm. and, and that was very stressful. And it, you know, now there's a lot more sensitivity to it, but there inside the studio, there was a scale and there was a chart. Yeah. Of your height and your weight. And you basically got on the scale every day. And now we know that there's, you know, there's alternatives to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also many other forms of dance and many other aesthetics. At the time, there were no black dancers Yeah, mm-hmm. to speak of. I mean, you know, one or two, but not really any amount. And there was no acceptance of alternative body types at all. Yeah. So, you know, I made it up to a certain point. I was, I was talented enough and had the facility enough, but then there was, there was some limitation somehow. And I, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't really get past that. By the end of the second year, when I was with Utah ballet, I, I was really uh, down and I think it's really important. I mean, I know this is the purpose of this is not just to share my story, but is to explain things or help other dancers to, mm-hmm. to, um, walk through the fires that we all face. So at the time I, I was very unhappy and I couldn't, I couldn't simplify. Yeah. Everything became more and more layered and more complex and more convoluted. And I, I couldn't get a grip on my weight and I couldn't be happy. And I, I felt that everything was against me in the world and I was mm-hmm. trying so hard and it just wasn't working. And I think a lot of dancers experience this because it is such a challenging field and it yeah. has so many parameters, physical, um, technical, emotional, and 
ultimately um, a lot of timing, mm -hmm. good timing, bad timing is, yeah, is ultimate, ultimately involved in what happens to us mm -hmm. uh, in our careers. And I, um, so, so I, I continued to audition for summer programs and I got accepted on scholarship to, uh, at the time, Pennsylvania and Milwaukee Ballet were, were joined. And this happens, mm -hmm. you know, uh, relatively often when dance companies are struggling financially, sometimes they merge with another company or it happened more, I guess, in the, in the eighties, Cleveland, San Jose, Pennsylvania, Milwaukee companies would, would join forces and they could share resources. So mm -hmm. the program was in Milwaukee and it, but I was on scholarship, but it was the Pennsylvania Milwaukee ballet. So I went to Milwaukee and had a really life changing experience. Uh, I was I was I was cast in the modern piece, and that was really the ultimate shame as a ballet dancer because that's not what any of us were there for. We were there to become ballet dancers, and it was of note that a couple of like at least three or four of the absolute best ballet dancers were also cast. So, you know, I started feeling less like it was a pity piece and more like it's just what it was. Mm -hmm. As it turned out, the piece was being choreographed by our modern teacher. His name was Ed Burgess, and he was a had been a dancer with several companies, um, Louis Falco for one, but also with, he was a main dancer with Jennifer Muller, The Works. And okay. the beautiful thing about this experience is that, well, it changed my life, basically, because right. I finally was exposed to a modern dance style, again, her being one of maybe even the earliest of the contemporary dancers and, mm -hmm. and choreographers in that, in that genre that was beautiful, that was meaningful. They used modern music. Um, our piece was to um, sting fragile was one oh, yeah. of the, was one mm -hmm. of the pieces and it was called Sunday in hell. And I remember it distinctly. It was, it was definitely a, an homage to New York. There were people walking around with newspapers and umbrellas and there was, you know, abusive couple and dynamic romance and, and interaction. And it was just really a powerful, powerful piece. And we all bonded extremely during that summer. Mm -hmm. uh, I was friends with Ed up until he passed away about five years ago. And, um, and it was life changing for me because I realized that there was a style of dance that, because I knew I was a good dancer, but I knew mm -hmm. that I was struggling in the world of ballet and there was a style of dance that in no way um, was hindered by my size, yeah. by my height, yeah. by my shape, whatever that was. And, um, and that was the Jennifer Muller technique, which was she danced for Jose Limon, so it was of course based very, very deeply in the Limon technique. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm leaving school and I'm moving to New York. And my parents, of course, were not excited about that. So, but I, I literally, I went back and I packed up all my stuff and I took it with me. And I told them I would make one last stab at something a little bit more stable. And I had been given a scholarship at the Hartford Ballet School through their summer program a few years back. Yep. And I knew they had like a trainee program. So I went and I scheduled an audition in Hartford with Enid Lynn, who was the director of the school. And I don't remember the audition, but I remember sitting with her in a room on two metal chairs and her speaking as they say what is it speaking truth to power <laughs> she she spoke so bluntly to me and i think it also changed the way i from then on and somehow stored that in my brain for how to communicate with young dancers because as you know i'm extremely direct yeah um when i when i teach dancers of all ages i don't i don't do any pantomiming and 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 um I don't add any flourishments on anything I say when I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get information across to young people. And she told me, she said, you're a lovely dancer and we would love to have you here in the trainee program. Um, but I need to let you know right now that you'll never step foot on stage because of your size. Cool. 
Now, ironically, well, ironically, I became friends with the director of Hartford Ballet years later, Michael Utoff, and he he told me that that was an odd coincidence because, or that was an odd moment for them because years before and years after, the company had been all tall women. Right. It just happened to be at that time. And so she was just telling me, and she said, listen, you can train with us. You're not going to go on stage. And you can just travel into New York every time there's a contemporary audition and go do it. Yeah. People also encouraged me, her included, to go to Hamburg or Frankfurt, where they had ballet companies with particularly larger women. Mm-hmm. And I, I, to some degree, I regret that I didn't do that, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out how to do it. It was too, too difficult a task to sort of walk in and go to Europe by myself. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't figure yeah. that out. Yeah. But she said, or you could just move to New York. Yeah. And train in New York and audition there. And I remember she just said it and I was like, like she said the first part, which hurt so much. And then she said the second part. So it was like she was explaining to me that there's always alternatives. There's always ways of moving forward, even if mm-hmm. the reality is this is just the reality. And there's no yep. sense in. Um, I firmly believe in swimming upstream. I firmly believe in, in accomplishing things that. That you think you might not be able to do. But there's also a point where you have to look at alternative solutions. Yeah. There's not only one solution. And what I failed to mention is, before I went to the University of Utah, that I auditioned for Juilliard and they told me forget about it. Sure, yeah. They didn't, they didn't just tell me forget about Juilliard. They said forget about dance. They had, no, oh. they had no inclination that I would ever become anything in the field. They were like redirecting me to another field. So mm-hmm. I just want everyone to know that we also don't have to, that experts can be wrong yes but but you don't need to bang your head against their wall you need to again find different solutions so they said don't don't dance i ended up at university of utah i ended up in milwaukee pennsylvania i ended up then ultimately that day moving to manhattan moving to new york and literally from that conversation i took my bags and my boxes i dragged them to a nearest gas station not joking, by myself. So I don't know why I didn't think I could do Europe because later I found out that I was in like the heart of the Hartford ghetto. I had no idea. <laughs> and there was a guy in a red car, with brown hair. And I said, excuse me, can you take me to the train station? And he was like, what? And I said, I need to get a train to New York. I'm moving to New York. Can you take me to the train station? And sure as shit, he put my stuff in his car and he took me to the train station I got to the train station and uh, got on the train. Oh, no, I called my father. There was no cell phone. I called my, my parents from the cell pay phone. phone, from the pay phone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm moving to New York. And my, actually, I think my mother answered and she said, your grandfather had a stroke. Your father's yeah. on a plane for New York right now. And your cousin is starting college in New York and your aunt and uncle are going into New York tomorrow and you can meet them and go find an apartment with your cousin see it it just all connects it all connects you're like i'm moving to new york and your mom's like well you've got family going yeah and just everything everything coincided i literally arrived and went to the hospital directly and then the next morning i connected with my cousin we found an apartment in a couple of days and um and i moved to new york and i started my adventure in New York. What happens to your boxes? You went to the hospital. What happens to those boxes in the red car? Oh, they well, I just hauled everything around with me. I mean, I think <laughs> I think maybe I maybe I stopped at my grandparents' apartment in Manhattan and left the stuff there, but but I remember it was I was kind of hauling my hauling my stuff. I had my like a turtle with a house on the back. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, one of the few times in my life, you know me very well, where I didn't have too many things. Yeah. Cause I have a lot of things, uh, but, uh, but so then, then my New York adventure started and I immediately went for the, to take class where the Jennifer Muller company rehearsed mm-hmm. and I trained and which was Perry dance. And I trained every day with ballet with Egal Perry and then modern with the Jennifer Muller 
company open class. It wasn't mm-hmm. the company class. It was their open class. And within a year, I had a job, a couple jobs, dancing. Um, I was waiting tables at night, sleeping, yeah. share, sharing a bedroom with my cousin, who was at art school, at School of Visual Arts, and uh, was dancing with a, a company, a spinoff company of the Jennifer Muller company. So there was a, a gentleman named William Adair, and he passed away, unfortunately, from AIDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was his company. So I was... There was like a youth ensemble and a professional ensemble. And the professional ensemble were all members of the company. So like I was in a performance with Ron Brown. Oh, dancing. wow. We were both dancing in the same company. Mm-hmm. So that was the generation. Um, and I danced with another company called Labyrinth Dance Theater that is still in existence today. And they do a lot of political uh, themed work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, my boyfriend at the time, uh, we were in a group show. I don't remember. There were several companies performing. And there was another girl. And she was at Juilliard. And uh, he said to me, well, she says she goes to Juilliard. And you're better than she is. Mm-hmm. You should consider re-auditioning. And I looked at her and at this, at this time living in New York and the lifestyle of, you know, walking everywhere. And Mm -hmm. of course, at the time I was smoking cigarettes and, and such. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, my body was fierce. So that, that issue that I had been so concerned with had kind of resolved itself, uh, just by living and dancing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I went for it. And yeah. it was another. It was another synergy of events that uh, one of the women that I was taking her ballet class at Perry Dance was a Benesh notator. Huh. Yeah, and she had the rights through Benesh, through her ability to with Benesh, to restage a number of choreographers' works. And she, there was a very famous choreographer at the time called Chu Sango. He was the um, choreographer and the director of the Washington Ballet. And he had did beautiful work. And she was like, oh, my God, there's this solo. It's called the Red Solo from this ballet called Spectrum. And it would be just beautiful. But I don't have the rights to set it on you. And mm-hmm. what I realized is that Shu Song Go, oh, no, he had just passed away of AIDS also. Mm-hmm. His partner, his husband, was Yannick Shurgan, who was my ballet master at Utah Ballet. Oh. He's now the director of the Singapore Ballet for about the past 15 years. Mm-hmm. So I, I called him and I said, Ilana Suprin is here and she wants to set this on me for my audition. And he said, you have my permission. So I Perfect. got this gorgeous, super high level professional company solo mm-hmm. staged on me. Um, and I auditioned for Juilliard and I got accepted. Nice. With flying colors. I was uh, one of the only women that was ever given a half a scholarship, half tuition scholarship. Nice. And um, ended up becoming, you know, uh, uh, one of the primary movers in a, in a time when Juilliard was transitioning. And my mentor, Ben Harcarvey, took over as the chair of the department. Awesome. Yeah. So, so, so that, that whole thing, it was, it wasn't meant for that moment, Juilliard for me. Right. I wasn't, Mm -hmm. I wasn't ready for it. I didn't have at all what they, what they wanted. And if I can, you know, add words of wisdom to any dancers that are listening is that sometimes the thing that you want the most, the company or the role or the college, both, it has to be a good fit. Fit is the perfect word for it. It has to be a good fit. And usually they know better than you if it's a good fit. Mm-hmm. So when I say don't always listen to the experts. So Juilliard told me this is not going to work in any shape or form. And I was like, well, they're wrong, but it didn't work with them. And that's how I just took it. You know, with a grain of salt, it's going to work. I'm going to make it work maybe a different way. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, when I increased my craft... Yeah. When I had exposure and became a more versatile dancer, 
then it was the right fit. And it was, mm-hmm. and it was a beautiful fit. Um, I pushed to graduate early and I wish I had not done that. And that would be, that would be uh, the next most important lesson that I have to tell dancers is that we're dancing longer and longer. Mm-hmm. Don't rush. Oh. I, I lost huge opportunities and doors open by thinking that I really needed to get out early because I was getting old. Yeah. And if I had stayed one more year, the, the, Ben took the, the Juilliard Ensemble to Netherlands Dance Theater to work with Erie Killian. And Matt's oh, ex- yeah. He founded mm-hmm. Netherlands Dance Theater. So it was a no-brainer. Ben, ben Harkarvey was the founder of Netherlands Dance Theater. What? My mentor. He? Oh. Mm-hmm. He, was the first, he was the first person that put ballet shoes, point shoes, and bare feet on the same stage so again my lineage as a as a educator a choreographer as being part of a movement is of this belief that all multiple forms of concert dance belong on the same stage Mm -hmm. and I had studied with Ben when I was 15 at Jacob's Pillow so I had already been exposed to his philosophy and understanding how Jennifer Muller had a, an edge to it that wasn't sort of the downtown modern dance, that it was this aesthetic modern dance that had contemporary music and contemporary themes. And then later meeting my partner, Diego, who was a, a primarily a jazz dancer and fusing that with my modern and my ballet technique and being in that same generation in the late nineties that you were in. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really all, all the, stars were all lined up and pushing in the same direction, which is of this contemporary dance style. Mm-hmm. You know, everything yeah. was leading me to that, to that point in one form or another. So, sure. so at that point, yes, I went to Juilliard. It was, it was, um, it was life changing. It was, a, a another one of my mentors, Jerry Houlihan, she calls it the beginning of her professional experience. And it, it most definitely was, I mean, I was dancing <clears throat> with, a, you know, 100-piece live orchestra, you know, wondering if the conductor had a date because he was playing so fast. Um, (laughs) I was, you know, getting uh, it in Lincoln Center in front of, you know, amazing crowds where I would be heralded to the lobby after and I would have a crowd of people around me that were asking me to sign their programs and and, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'm going to come back to a lot of these things uh, later because you asked me about top five um, attributes that I look yeah. for in a standout company member. I've already touched on a couple of them, mm-hmm. but, uh, but one of the things for me personally, that's, you know, one of my greatest joys and egotistical moments, uh, but it does relate to this. And I'll tell you why later is that when I would go there, they would all tell me the same thing. When you danced, I knew that you were looking directly at me. Mm-hmm. And that intimacy that I felt as a performer, I felt so, um, I felt so much gratitude that the audience felt that as well. Yeah. That I I was really reaching them on an intimate level. Um, and I, I felt so proud that, that I I was communicating in that way and, and that they could enjoy it so much. So, so yeah, Juilliard, Juilliard was tremendous. And, and, you know, living in New York, in the early nineties, it was a great time. It was still a very gritty city. There was, mm-hmm. in my opinion, it was a much better city than it is now because hmm. there was more diversity. Yeah. There, there was the good and the bad. I mean, you know, Dennis Leary says, you know, uh, the comedian, he made a, a, a whole comedy routine that had a lot to do with New York. And he used to say, you know, we wear, the badge of New York so proudly. And, you know, you say, oh, I served in Vietnam. Oh, I live in New York. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) good block, bad block. Yeah. You know, uh, fancy block, crack block. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that crime and drugs um, and, and, you know, diminished existence of human beings is good. What Mm -hmm. I'm saying is that New York's culture included all of that. And now New York's culture has just pushed it out. 
It's not that it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It's that New York is candy coated and it doesn't allow for, unless you go specifically out to the outskirts where these things exist. Mm-hmm. And, and there's something that manifests when you, when people are interacting with each other that are from such diverse places. When you have a, you know, wealthy businessman who takes the subway and right in front of him is a drunk guy throwing up on himself. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like the things that build character in a person. Mm -hmm. These are the things that build character in a city and the people reflect the city. Yeah. So Times Square may not have been that great and it wasn't maybe that great. Maybe you couldn't go at night and maybe there were porn theaters all up and down 41st Street. But Jenny Holzer, a famous artist at the time, took over all those porn theaters and on the marquees put her poetry. Ah. So what an incredible artistic expression it was for her to mm-hmm. do that. But there's no, there's Mickey Mouse and, and a giant M&M dancing around now. There's yeah. no place, there's no place for that deep, heavy artistic innovation that came out of a community like that. And the, yeah. art, the art world is a huge business itself, its own candy covered um, Eminem dancing around, you know, mm-hmm. Broadway, which I know is an amazing turn for dance, that it has mm-hmm. blossomed so much. It is everything in New York now. It was part, you know, and just outside of Broadway was Hell's Kitchen, the worst mm-hmm. neighborhood in Manhattan, gone now, full of condos. So there is something about the time that I lived there that is irreplaceable. And I wouldn't wish that that things would go south again for New York, but I'm just glad that I got to experience a New York that had grunge, that had rebellion, that had counterculture. There is no Mm -hmm. counterculture in New York. That's, I think that's the best way to summarize it. New York is what it is. It's the great city of New York. And I love it when I go there. I mean, I love it. My, I, my heart is in the sidewalk itself because Mm -hmm. I love it so much. But it's not the same city. And I don't think in the long run it's going to produce the same kind of artists. I think other cities are producing the artists now and they're coming to New York. That brings up a good point. I, you're, you're absolutely right. These, at some point, New York had to trade culture for safety for, for them to, I guess, economically flourish. Um, yes, but, and, and it did economically flourish much more, correct. Yeah, once you bring that safety aspect in, they can bring more people in. That it, it's, a, it's a bigger draw. But you did say there's performers, dancers, uh, any many runs the spectrum of entertainment that are being produced outside of New York and then bring brought in. So what is what's your stance on education versus experience inside New York versus outside of New York? Well, I think that every artist has their own trajectory. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that in dance specifically, we are returning to an earlier time when dancers are just hitting 17 and 18 and have the skill sets of some professional dancers in the past. Absolutely. Um, And so I have, I had always been for a very long time, a big proponent of college, even though myself, I quit college to go work professionally. Mm -hmm. What I, what I feel is that a conservatory for dance can provide a dancer with the final pieces that they need that they are not, um, that they don't have the, the option to learn in a, just in a studio environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, even a good conservatory doesn't always give you everything you need. You know, you don't have six months to prepare three pieces for a show. You have right. four weeks, or maybe let's say you have six weeks in which mm-hmm. to prepare three completely different shows, three yeah. two-hour shows, and perform them. <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in fact, in the real world, you are still in the choreographing process for your next show while you're in the theater, 
teching yeah. for the show that night. So there are some, some things that only the real world experience can provide. But I can definitely say that the college conservatory experience in dance does a good job of creating a more versatile dancer and does put the dancer through the physical strain of an eight hour day of dancing. Mm-hmm. And those are things, you know, these young, young students that I have seen in the contemporary world, in the competition world, they're putting themselves through even more extreme physical things than a concert dance company would or a Broadway show would. And so their bodies are already destroyed. They probably won't, honestly, they probably won't last in a professional environment. I, mm-hmm. I know 10-year-olds with tears in their labrums and their hips. Mm-hmm. You know, younger and younger people are getting hip replacements. So this is not a, I think, you know, the, the idea in the ballet world, dancers are always going to need to get into a company earlier mm-hmm. because the physical stress is so much. Um, and we have, have had in our, in our, in dance now, Miami, in our company, dancers from Cuba that have never had a college degree, but they had an eight year curriculum, mm-hmm. a professional school. So it's a totally different, a totally different animal. Now, when a dancer lives in New York, grows up in New York, you know, it's, it's professional children's school is what it used to be, which is one of the like homeschool environments for professional dancers. It's LaGuardia. Mm-hmm. Now there's uh, another school that's actually run by one of our friends, Sabrina, Sabrina yeah. Jafar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's called, I want to call it Fort Hamilton. It's affiliated with the Joffrey. Yeah. And that is, you know, up in the, in the upper echelon of, of professional training. All those kids are all encouraged to go to college for dance. Mm -hmm. Um, But being in New York, you have the opportunity to uh, brush with the professional world of dance. And I think that, I mean, I can't speak so much for Broadway. Although, Mm -hmm. ironically, many of my students have gone on to Broadway. Jose Luis, he did In the Heights, and now he's back in. Ariana did the revival of cats. She did on your feet. Um, a couple mm-hmm. of our kids are in, I have three people involved with Hamilton. Um, so one of the girls in Hamilton did four years. She went to Berkeley for, for voice. Mm-hmm. Um, another one that just got into Hamilton was dancing at a studio and taking academics at Miami Dade college. And after two years, she got into Hamilton. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that I think that the difference now is the amount of jobs there are in New York for dancers. Mm-hmm. There weren't. I uh, when I was at Juilliard, Garth Fagan uh, choreographed in '92 a piece called Grio New York, and Grio is the um, term in the African American uh, experience for the oral history that is passed on from generation to generation in Africa. Mm -hmm. And so Grio New York was about the African-American New York experience, let's say. And at the time he did a presentation on the Lion King because he was in the process of choreographing it. Mm. That show changed everything. That show brought dance and modern dance onto Broadway. Absolutely. Everything changed then. Then Twyla Tharp did... Moving Out. Moving Out. And then mm-hmm. Contact happened. And I can't remember who choreographed Contact. And those were, for me, the three shows that changed Broadway. <clears throat> and that sure. brought, made Broadway, again, dance-focused. Yeah. And since yeah, then, course. it has just... <clears throat> Say again? No, of course. You're right. Oh, and I thought you were men- mentioning another show, but that maybe I missed. But but at that point, all of a sudden, the shows incorporated high level, not just you know Broadway dance, a little tap, a little jazzy moves, but hardcore, well trained dancers. 
And and since then, so we're talking about whatever, 98 maybe when Lion King was, because it happened in 95 maybe? Anyway, it was around then. It's been what? 20 years? 25 years? Yeah, it is I think it's somewhere the, up there. The face of Broadway has changed to be dance-oriented. And so the number of employees that it can support has changed. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, so that changes the landscape. And that means that there are, there are many, many more opportunities for people to come from around the world, uh, around the country and around the world, and work in New York. Yeah. And you're right. There's a lot of the, the the opportunity is a lot more robust in New York City than it is anywhere else, especially specifically, like you say, in Broadway. There are shows that in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, and even until about 2010, where it was really dance driven. Like you said, um, Moving Out was there. He, heavy on the dancers. Of course, right. heavy on the dancers is Lion King. But also things like Wicked were hugely popular Correct. shows yes. that were yes. Wayne's Lento really focused on the dancer and how they could bring that magic into the show. And of course, Broadway takes these turns all the time. You know, Cirque du Soleil is making this track. I was, was going to say that the other one that did it, if I, you don't mind me interrupting, that yeah. I was going to say as soon as you finished, the other avenue that became an employment for dancers was Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. And, and Cirque du course, Soleil originally was one touring show yeah. every other year. But then it became these multiple shows and stationary shows. And that was the other direction if you were a dancer, depending on what your skill set was. You could do Cirque du Soleil or you could do Broadway. Yeah. And uh, both hugely viable <laughs> options and he, massive, massive companies. Like Broadway in itself is a, a massive industry. And then our Cirque du Soleil now is a creatively massive um, uh, culture as well. Um, mm-hmm. But once they were coming on the scene, of course, it opens up all the jobs there. But yes, and you can move to that culture and thrive very well. But I have a feeling, too, that there is schools and trainings outside of New York. Thanks for joining in on the conversation. To view additional content, follow E's podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Be sure to subscribe and leave comments on the episode wherever this podcast can be found. See you next week.